0: Ephesians chapter 1. You know, when the Lord Jesus Christ arose from the dead, it was a surprise to everybody. Nobody was standing outside the tomb waiting to see him rise. Nobody thought to do that. Now, the Pharisees had put a guard on the tomb, but the reason they put the guard on the tomb was because they were afraid that his disciples would steal his body. It was impossible, and they knew it, and they really weren't concerned about the idea of Jesus rising from the dead. There was one person, though, I think, that was not at all surprised that something happened that morning. There was one person, I think, that planned that it wouldn't happen. And that was Satan. Satan set himself about making sure this didn't happen. Because, remember, there's a war of the ages going on. And it's been fought in many avenues throughout the ages. This world has been the battlefield. Ever since the Garden of Eden, when uh, Adam and Eve uh, gave in to Satan and ushered uh, sin into the world and all the the problems and difficulties that we've had since then, this war has raged through our earth. And the decisive moment in that battle was the morning Jesus rose from the dead. Because that proved that he was the victor. We sing songs of triumph and songs of victory, and rightly so, because listen, he is the victor. He won the battle that day. He rose from the dead, and he proved that it really was his and that he has the power and that all of it belongs to him. And guess what? You're his child. Listen, you are the child of the living, risen conqueror, Jesus Christ. You're born again by faith in him this morning. Listen, you're his child. That's a glorious thing to be. But I think that just in as much as... Almost nobody really expected him to rise. You know what? I don't think we understand the power that has been ushered into the world. The power that's been made available to us because he rose that morning. And this morning, I want to grapple with that for a few moments. I'm trying to grapple with this power that was ushered into the world in the moment when Jesus rose from the dead and is available to you and I as his children today. Let's look to our passage, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. We're going to read to the end of the chapter, and then we'll pray. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And here's his prayer, that the Lord God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Right? So he wants you to understand something. He wants you to have a revelation of something. He wants something to become clear, to become clear for us today. Now, Paul prays again uh, in, in, in Ephesians chapter 3, and it's in the same vein. But in Ephesians chapter 3, it's that we might know the love of God. But here he wants us to understand something, and we need to understand it. And he realizes that they don't. They don't get it. They don't understand it. And he's praying, oh, that our heavenly Father would open up your eyes so that you could understand this, right? Verse 18. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Right? So he talks about revelation. He talks about wisdom. He talks about knowledge. He talks about being enlightened. That ye may know what is the hope of his calling. Now, the hope of his calling has tremendous ramifications for us. Right? Listen, obviously it's dealing with eternity, we'll talk a little bit about that. But it's also dealing with life here now, the hope of his calling. What does it mean, the fact that you're a child of the living God? What does it mean, the fact uh, that this risen Savior dwells within you and empowers you to live the Christian life? It's going to mean a whole lot. But oftentimes we don't live like that. Oftentimes we live like it's up to us to do the best we can and we're not living according to the power that's there for us you know we're not actually taking that on board and realizing that he wants us to our eyes to be enlightened that we may know what is the hope of his calling and what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints now inheritance is a word we understand don't we we, you know to get an inheritance uh, is a nice thing. you know someday you get an inheritance, and you know if your parents were really wealthy, uh, you get a big inheritance, and you know maybe you get a small inheritance. but an inheritance is something that we that we we, we rejoice in we 're excited about right and An inheritance typically is because we 're part of a family it 's because we 're part of a family that we, that we 've got to share uh, in the property of the family now. As a child of God, that's not just a word that Jesus or that God bandied about. You're part of a family. You're part of his family. You're a prince of heaven. With an inheritance, there's something real and tangible that this means to your life. And yes, of course, it means heaven. But you know what? There's a lot more goes into it than just heaven. There's a lot more than goes into the salvation than just fire insurance that saves us from hell. There's a life that goes into it. There's a life that's to be lived, a life that's to be lived in power. I, <clears throat> verse 19, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power? Now, <clears throat> verse 19 is an amazing verse. First, verse 19 has four different words for power. Put into it. Uh, the word power there, uh, the word working, the word mighty, and the word power. All of those words are, are, are words that say <clears throat> effectively power. And I could give you the different uh, words and the different slight nuances and the meanings of them, but it wouldn't help you. What Paul is doing here is he's just piling on the words to help you understand something. Right? And it would be kind of like this. Well, say I was to say to you that I was down by the beach and I saw a big wave. You'd say, okay, saw a big wave. But if I said it was, it was a huge enormous, mountainous sea that was coming at me, you'd think tsunami, wouldn't you? Now, the words in themselves are not the issue. It's the fact that I've used four words to describe it that's saying to you, this this wave was big. Now, what the apostle is trying to convince us of here is the power that we're talking about here was incredible power. It was power like we can't imagine. It was absolutely an incredible power that that changed everything. And really it did. It changed absolutely everything. Now, look at the next verse because this kind of catches up with that thought of how great this power is. Which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Now, this power was unleashed when God raised Jesus from the dead. When Jesus stepped out of that tomb, There was a power unleashed greater than the world has ever seen. There was a power unleashed that's greater than any atom bomb. There was a power set loose in the world that hasn't quit, that continues. Now, let let, let me tell you a little bit about that power. You know, uh, the Pharisees had a guard around the tomb to to prevent the the disciples from stealing the body of Jesus. But you know what? They weren't the only guards that were around that tomb that day. Because Satan was expecting something to happen. Satan knew this was the battleground. You see, Jesus had said clearly that he was going to die. We may not know the scripture very well sometimes, but Satan does. Satan understands the scripture. Jesus had said clearly that he would die Jesus were, it was no surprise to Jesus that he went on the cross to die it shouldn't have been any, any surprise to the, to the disciples either but it was they were totally shocked they were uh, absolutely blown away by this thing <clears throat> but it shouldn't have been he'd been telling them way back from Matthew chapter 16 he started telling them that he was going to die and Peter says no no that'll never be And he's but they're not getting it. They're not catching it. If you come back tonight, we'll look at uh, the Emmaus Road and we'll see some reasons why uh, they didn't get it, right? But they they didn't get it. But Satan did, right? So when Jesus died on the cross, yes, that was Satan's moment. He took Jesus and he put him to death. But he had another problem. He had to make sure he stayed dead because he said he would raise after three days. And I think there was a guard around that tomb that was invisible. I think Satan himself sat on that tomb that morning. I think every force that Satan could muster was arranged there to make sure Jesus didn't come out of that thing again. This was going to be, if Jesus could actually raise from the dead, then Satan knew this was defeat. This was Jesus triumphing over him. And he put everything in action that he possibly could to stop it from happening. Now, we know that there are battles that go on in the, in the heavenlies because the Bible tells us Michael the archangel had to fight against a demon, the prince of Persia. You know, we know there are, there are battles that go on. And I think the battle that raged that night was a battle second to none. But you know what? God's power was greater. God's power, and God unleashed that power. And that power brought Jesus back to life and sprung him from the tomb. Satan couldn't keep him there for all that he tried and all that he wanted to. And that power was set loose in Jesus. And it's been set loose in us because we're his children. It's a power that just overcomes all obstacles. We need to understand that power, though. We need to recognize it is not your puny power that's going to do anything for God. It is not my puny power. It is not our intelligence, our education, our intellect, or anything to do with us. It's his power working in us. And as long as we can be deceived into depending upon something else, we'll never live the holy lives we're supposed to live. And we'll never live in the power that we're supposed to. So Let us ask the Lord to bless this morning and enable us to live in that power. Blessed Spirit of the living God, would you move in hearts and lives this morning? Lord, would you take and would you undertake for us and would you deal with us? Lord, may we first of all realize this great power. And Lord, may we come to expect it and to, to depend upon it. And Lord, may it be the reality of our lives That we live in that glorious, great, and mighty power. In order to thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Paul is praying for them to be enlightened here, uh, and he's praying about their inheritance. Now, what is it that your inheritance is? Well, first of all, obviously, your inheritance deals with salvation. And if you're not saved this morning, let me encourage you Uh, the most glorious thing for you to do in this life is to get saved. It's the sweetest, it's the simplest, and it is the most glorious. You see, uh, the miracle uh, that God did in raising from the, uh, Jesus from the dead is comparable, comparative, in a sense, to the miracle he does when saving us from our sin. You see, everybody in this room is a sinner. Everybody in this room deserves hell. Everybody on this planet does. Everybody who's ever walked on this planet apart from the Lord Jesus Christ deserves hell. <clears throat> because we've all sinned, we've all gone our own way, we've all done our own thing. And we know we have. You see, to sin is, in, in its simplest form is to do your own thing and not what God wants you to do. And listen, we're experts at that. Ever since Adam and Eve, uh, we've done it, uh, and we've done it well, and we've done it <clears throat> uh, awfully. But listen, we've done our own thing. We've lived our own lives, and everybody has. You know, You, you, you say, I haven't done anything terribly wicked. You don't need to. You just did your own thing. You just went your own way and did your own thing and ultimately that leads you into a mess but the reality is it doesn't have to be a big mess. Listen, you're just doing your own thing. And because God loves us and he knew that our sin had earned us a price in hell, a place in hell, he sent his son to die for us. But in his son going to die for us, Jesus had to take your sin upon him and be the substitute and pay the price for it. That's a miracle. That's an absolutely incredible miracle. How can he pay for your sins? How can he take what you did and pay the price for it? Well, he did. He he took it all. And he paid all the price for it and he made an atonement. He made a sacrifice that was acceptable to the Father and the Father said, okay, it's all right. Their sin is dealt with. They can be cleansed. They can be washed. They can come to me now on the basis of your righteousness and I will accept them. And that's what he does. He accepts us on the basis of the righteousness of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, because of what Jesus did. And not a one of us is going to go into heaven because of what we've done, good or bad. What we're going to do is we're going to get into heaven because we've trusted in Jesus and we wear his righteousness. And that's the only way for you to go to heaven. And if you're not saved today, listen, it's as simple as you come to understand. You're facing the reality of, I'm a sinner. I deserve hell. You've got to understand, listen, you deserve hell. The Word tells you you deserve hell. The Spirit of God points out to you that you deserve hell. And you know what? The truth is you understand it, you know it. We're looking at Sunday school this morning in Acts chapter 7. And <clears throat> Stephen went through <clears throat> the um, <clears throat> all the sins of Israel through the ages. And when he came to the end of it, they gnashed on him with their teeth. Why did they gnash on him with their teeth? Because they were convicted. He was right. It was true. It was true of their forefathers and it was true of them. They were convicted. There had been a, 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 a deep conviction. And the response to the deep conviction was either to trust what Stephen was saying, get saved, or to stone Stephen. They chose to stone Stephen. That's what they did. But when you come to a place where you understand you're a sinner, and it's not a pretty sight, And the spirit of God reveals to you your need and you cry out to Jesus Christ. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's a cast iron promise. It's a solid promise. Listen, you can be sure that God will always keep his word and do what he said he will do. But what does that mean in your life then, the fact that you're saved? Well, it means several wonderful things. Heaven is a place where the Bible says there's no more sin, sorrow, or suffering. None. We don't know what that's like. We we can't comprehend that. No more sin, sorrow, or suffering. Never. When we we, listen, we might go on holidays for a week or two and have no sorrow and suffering. But the reality of life is, it's always coming around the bend to us. Heaven is a place where there's no more sin, sorrow, or suffering. None. And that's just the smallest part of it. Um, Heaven is a place where there's perfect fellowship. Do you understand that that you're going to be perfect when you get to heaven? So is everybody else in heaven. We're all going to be perfect. You know, all the issues and problems and difficulties and so on that we had down here, I think there there, there will probably be a time of sorting out things uh, when we get to heaven. But you know what? None of those apply up there. Because we'll be perfect. We'll be perfectly spiritual. And so there's no sorrow. There's no suffering. There's perfect fellowship. But you know, that's not the most important thing about heaven. The most important thing about heaven is Jesus is there. Look, look at me at John chapter 14. Keep your finger in Ephesians because that's where we are. But look at John chapter 14. It says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may, may be also. Now, I want you to just catch this in context. Jesus telling them he's going to, be going to make them a mansion. And listen, we think of heaven as being a beautiful place and it's just wonderful, it's fantastic. But do you know that if Jesus had told these disciples, I'm going to prepare a mansion for you. And they had said, will you be there? And he had said, no, I can't be there. They'd have said, well, then we don't want to go. Because their issue was, they had Jesus. They were about to lose him because he was going to die, and he's telling them, it's okay, I will come again for you, because I'm preparing a place for you, and I will be with you. Now, we need to understand this, that the streets of gold won't mean anything to us in heaven. Nobody's going to be getting up in the night to go and dig up a few stones at the streets of gold. Where would you spend it? What do you need? The diamonds and all, listen, Nobody cares about all those things. They're beautiful, but that's all they are. The most beautiful thing about heaven is he is there. And everything is okay because he is there. He is there. We will be with him through eternity. We will have no sin, sorrow, or suffering. We will have perfect fellowship with each other, but he's there. We will enjoy his presence forever. And we need to understand that that's what Christianity is about. Him. Our inheritance is him. We have a part in him. Look, just just read on John chapter fourteen there. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> and whither I go ye know, and the way ye know. And Th- Thomas pipes up and says, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? By by the way, isn't it interesting how often the disciples contradict the Lord Jesus? Isn't it interesting how often they say to him, yeah, well, yeah, well, we know where you're going and we don't know how you, how, how could we know the way? And Jesus has just said to him that you do. See what Jesus says, though, uh, uh, in verse 6. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father me, but by me. What does Jesus say? <clears throat> Thomas is saying, how do we know where you're going? We don't even know how you're going to get there. We, we know anything about this. What are you talking about? And Jesus says, I am the way. It's not something that you need. It's not more money. It's not more people. It's not another car or a better house or a new job. It's Jesus. He is the answer. He is the solution. He is what we need. Now, let me read you some quotes here. Uh, F. B. Meyer says this about this passage. He said, Thomas persisted in his protestations of ignorance and so the Lord uttered for his further information the royal sentence which sums up Christianity in one simple pronoun, I. It was as if he said to his disciples gathered there and to his church in all ages, to have me, to know me, to love and obey me, this is religion. This is the light for every dark hour, the solution for all mysteries. Christianity is more than a creed, a doctrinal system, or a code of rules. It is God. Christ. Our inheritance is Christ. Uh, Few books focus on the Lord Jesus Christ anymore. Most of the hot-selling books are about self-esteem or financial independence, success in relationships, or even quote-unquote Christian novels about love and all of those things are designed for people who are desperate to feel good about themselves. Those kind of things can never provide the true satisfaction that comes only in the pursuit of a deep and loving relationship with the living Christ. It is a sad thing uh, to say but true. Modern evangelicalism really is more concerned about self-love than the love of Christ, and it isn't new. Again, it's the same old disease that played the very church to which this letter was written, the church at Ephesus, against whom the indictment came, you have left your first love. Uh, One writer wrote this in the 1600s. He said, the life of Christianity consists very much in our love to Christ, without love to Christ, we are as much without spiritual life as a carcass when the soul is fled from it is without natural life. Faith without love to Christ is a dead faith, and <clears throat> a, Christian, a Christian without love to Christ is a dead Christian, dead in sins and trespasses. Without love to Christ, we may have the name of Christians, but we are only we are <clears throat> but we are wholly without the nature. We may have the form of godliness, but we are wholly without the power. Then he went on to say, if Christ has their love, their desires will be chiefly after him. Their delights will be chiefly in him. Their hopes and expectations will be chiefly in him. Everything's in him. And you see, we don't realize that. We think that Jesus came to give us external things to fix things for us, to make things better in our relationships, to make things better in our homes, to give us more money, to take care of those needs, and we look to all those things. But the truth is, he came to give us himself. He is our inheritance. He is our inheritance. I love about the Levites in the Old Testament. The Levites in the Old Testament were, were different from all the people. They were the priestly tribe. And everybody else got their lands and got their, <clears throat> got their pieces of, uh, of ground and got everything that was given them. But you know what God said about the Levites? He said, they're not getting anything. And you say, that's not fair. Everybody else gets something. And because they serve God, they get nothing. And no, God says, because I am their portion. God said, I am their portion. I will take care of them. And you know what? When you got saved, you got Jesus. And he is your portion. And we are consistently looking for something outside to satisfy. And Jesus says, I will satisfy. We don't know the way. We don't know where you're going. How can we know anything? I am the way. What's your problem this morning? What's your need? What's your felt need? Don't they all talk about our felt needs? The needs that we feel. What's your felt need this morning? Jesus is the solution. Jesus is the fixer. He is the answer. The only thing is, you'll never be fixed while you're going after other things to fix you. You'll never be fixed while you're looking for something else that's going to fix you. Jesus is the fixer. <clears throat> Why don't you look back in Ephesians? Why do you look in verse 19 again? And it says, and <clears throat> what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward? Do you know that this great power, this great demonstration of power in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ was to usward? Was for us. Oh, yes, it proved who he was. But that great demonstration of power is to usward. The needs and the burdens, and all that's going on in our hearts, Jesus meets. But we don't look there. I could go through this room this morning, and I know I've said it now, so we'd all be, we'd all be clued in, and we'd all know the answer to the question now, Because, <clears throat> but I could go through this room before we said this and ask you, what is it that you really need? And I doubt that a half a dozen people would say, Jesus because that's not what we feel we need but that is what we need the troubles in our lives are there for the purpose of pressing us to Jesus because he's the answer Jesus is the answer he's the solution now we can have a Christianity or we can pretend about Christianity <clears throat> and um go in some other direction with it and try and make it all happy for us. But no. Jesus is the answer. He is our righteousness. He is our life. He is everything to us. And it's not a case of he does for us. Don't we sometimes take it that Jesus is like a benevolent Santa Claus in our lives? That he gives, that he does, that we have problems and he fixes the problems. No. Listen, Jesus can give you anything, money, anything you want. There's nothing Jesus can't give you. But he gives you something infinitely more precious. He gives you something that no money could buy. He gives you himself. I want to just cast your mind. This is an illustration. Illustrations always have their, their limitations. Right, let's keep that in mind. But you're in heaven, right? And you're in your mansion, and the, and the guy next door in your mansion comes into you one night, and he says to you, listen, wait till it's dark, and um, you know what we're going to do? We're going to get some of that gold off the main street there, and bring it in, and we'll bury it. right Because, you know, listen, all that gold, people are just walking on it. Right? What are you going to do? What are you going to tell them? You're going to laugh, aren't you? <laughs> what are you going to do with the gold? Everything you have at need of is met in Jesus. And your job would be to, to try and let him see that, because he can go and take the gold, uh, but it doesn't do him any good. Now, that's the way we are. We, we look for this, and we look for that, and we look for the other, and, and he says, no, no, no. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm it. I'm what you need. I can, I can fix it. Not I can fix it externally, but I can fix it if you come to me. I can actually take care of it. I can take care of you, is what he says. See, so you, you got a burden in your heart today, and you got something that has just, <clears throat> just eaten you alive. Jesus says, Come to me. I'll fix it. You're weary, come unto me, all you that labor and are weary laden, and I will give you rest. Heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is he he doesn't present himself, you know, <clears throat> as this king who gives out gifts. He presents himself as the one who is the gift. But when we come to him, he takes care of us. That when we come to him, he meets the need. You see... Well, say you got a credit card bill this morning, right? <clears throat> and you run up a credit card bill, and you, you, you owe a lot of money on the credit card, and, they're, and they're, 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 um, <clears throat> they're, they're on your case about it, right? Now, I shouldn't have brought that up on a Sunday morning. Should this is Easter Sunday morning, and you, and you didn't want to hear about those things, right? But we'll say you, you, you've got a credit card bill. Well, we'll say Jesus comes, and, you know, at the end of the service, he writes you a check and pays the credit card bill. Well, listen, you've got your felt need dealt with. You've got your immediate burden removed. But you know what you're going to do? You're just going to get in the same trouble again. Because that's not the real need. There's a reason why you ran up that debt. There's a reason why, why, why those things happen. You may be in a relationship that's in turmoil and that you're struggling with and that's in, that's in trouble. And, and, and you like to change relationships. That's what people do. They change relationships. But you know what? The problem is you take you with you. You see, all our problems are in there. All of our problems are in there. They have a manifestation on the outside, but they're in there. When we come to Jesus, he fixes what's in there. He fixes those. And he's not interested in half measures. And he won't be manipulated into fixing your half measure, doing your half measure. Have you noticed that? Now listen, there are times when in mercy he steps in and he helps you with your problem that you're really that, that, that's really weighing you down. But that's not the solution to it. The solution to it is to change you. And that's what Jesus does. He meets the need of your heart and changes you so that you can walk with him in spite of the trouble and the difficulty. See that's part of your inheritance. Now look <clears throat> if if I had an inheritance, right? <clears throat> And you, and you saw me across the road outside the shop with the begging bowl out. And you knew, you knew I was a millionaire because I had an inheritance. You'd say, get over yourself and go and get the money out of the bank. What are you doing here? But do you know the children of the living God live like paupers? The children of the living God live as though there's no one to take care of them. They live as though really Christ doesn't do it. They try and extract it from somewhere. They try and do it through money. They try and do it through relationships. They try and do it through sin. They try and do it through all kinds of ways because they're not willing to come home to the place where, listen, he's it. He is it. And this power of the resurrection was manifest to usward so that we would know there's absolutely nothing he can't do. Nothing. Nothing. Listen, Satan tried to stop him from rising from the dead. Satan tried to to stop Christianity before he ever got started. But you know what? He wasn't able to do it. And there's nothing that can stop Jesus. Nothing. Now, there's a faith issue involved there for you. Because you've got to come to the place where you recognize, you know what? I don't need all these things out here. I need this one thing. I don't need all these things to go right in my life. I need this one thing. I need this relationship with him. I need this sweetness with him. That's what I need. I just need him. And you have him. And in him, you have everything else you could possibly need. But it's not external to him. It's in him. You have it all in him. You see... If we were to go around this room and talk about the different things that we need, they'd be very different. You know, some have financial troubles. Some have relationship troubles. Some have family difficulties. You know, some are lonely. There's there's all kinds of different issues. And Jesus deals with all of them, one-on-one. He deals with all of it. He is the answer. Now, he's he's not the way to the answer. He's not the means to the answer. He's not the way to get it out of somebody. He is the answer. You rest in him. You enjoy him. And his power works in your life. Listen, he may choose to leave, leave some of the problems in your life. That may be the reality that he wants for you. That may be what it takes for you. Remember the Apostle Paul, as wise and as spiritual and as faithful as he was. He was given the throne in the flesh and Jesus said, I'm not taking it away, Paul, because you need it. You need it to stop you from being proud so that you can depend upon me. God may leave problems in your life and issues in your life to drive you to him. But you know what? In him is the solution. In him is what you need. In him is everything. And there's a power to meet the needs in your life that is unsurpassed by any power the world has ever seen. The greatest power the world ever saw was unleashed the moment Jesus rose from the dead. And there's a power there that's available to you to change your life and to fix you. Not the other guy. Not your problem, but to fix you. The question for you is, are you willing to trust by faith in him that he can do it? This is the morning of the resurrection. This is the day when we, when we remember that Jesus rose from the dead. Let me ask you this morning, are you willing to put your trust in him? Are you willing to take your need, your brokenness, your, your hurt, your pain, your, uh, <clears throat> your lack, are you willing to take it to him? And say, Lord, I can't. I'm not able to carry this burden. But Lord, I'm giving it to you and I'm going to rest in you and enjoy you. Now, that sounds very easy, doesn't it? It is very easy. And what he'll do is he'll take your hand and he'll lead you. Don't pull away from him. Don't go your own way. Don't do your own thing. Just go his way because it's the best plan for you. And what you'll find in your life is he is the answer. He is the solution. He is what I needed. See, we think we know what we need, but we don't. He does know what we need, and he can meet it. We have come to him and let him meet the need. Let's all stand to our feet. Father in heaven, we come to you today, and we do thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your love to us. Thank you for this resurrection day. Thank you for the reality of a risen Savior. Thank you for the one that, Lord, by your promise in your word dwells within us. And, O oh, blessed spirit, we come to you today. We ask you, Lord, would you work in hearts and lives. Lord, there are needs, and there are burdens, and there is brokenness, and there is heartache, but there is Jesus. And, O oh, Lord, that we might come to you with our brokenness and with our needs, and with our burdens. And Lord, that we might know you, and that we might, we might rejoice in you. We know you can fix the burdens. We know you can fix the problems. But Lord, we're not asking that this morning. We're asking for you. We're just asking that we might rejoice in you, that we might walk with you, and that we might see your power unleashed in our lives. Now, Lord, would you do it in Jesus' precious name? Amen piano's going to play, and as the piano's playing and God is dealing with you, why don't you step out and come and lay your burden before him. Just come and do business with him. Just lay your burden before him as the piano plays. I don't know what the burden is. I don't know what the difficulty is. But lay your burden before him and tell him you want to be satisfied in him. It's not the burden you need fixed. You want to be satisfied in him. As God moves in your heart, would you come?